The Future of Finance is Here podcast looks at the changing landscape of the Australian finance industry. Our industry is financing Australia's future, a future that will be driven by access and choice for consumers, embracing innovation and competition, and generating greater economic and therefore social participation for all Australians. AFIA CEO Diane Tate talks to industry leaders and extraordinary individuals about their experiences, good and bad, and how those experiences have shaped and continue to shape their contribution to our industry and Australia. Hello, and welcome to The Future of Finance is Here, AFIA's inaugural podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing businesses that have changed the landscape of the finance industry and how the founders, as pioneers, discovered a new path to travel resulting in different value propositions for the industry. Our guests will share the stories about building a successful business, the support, both financial and non-financial, that they have drawn upon and the challenges they faced on their path to success. Today, we're joined by Catherine McConnell, founder and CEO of one of Australia's most successful fintechs, Bright. Bright is a buy now, pay later technology platform providing Australians with an easy way to pay for home energy and home improvements. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Di. We're also joined by Cameron Pullman, CEO of OnDeck Australia, who was instrumental in bringing the OnDeck group to find a home in Australia. It was founded first in the United States in 2007 where OnDeck pioneered the use of data analytics and digital technology to make real-time lending decisions to deliver capital to SMEs online. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks, Di. So not only do these two have similar-sounding names, Catherine and Cameron, they have a lot in common, and I'm really excited to get to the bottom of it and what makes them tick, what drove their entrepreneurial spirit, what made them come to the finance industry. Not only are they successful entrepreneurs leading really, truly fintech companies in Australia, they are also both members of the board of AFIA, and, as it turns out, related. Catherine, for you first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to start the business and what motivated you? Okay, so my background is all in finance. So I'd worked um, primarily at Macquarie Bank for 14 years. I've also worked in, in government for a few years as an economist, Department of Finance and Treasury. Specific background at, at Macquarie where I worked in sales and and also product development, and it was there I created a product for residential and commercial solar finance. So in doing that, I identified that there was a bit of a gap in the market and there were some problems that weren't being solved at the point of sale. And and I thought that my skill set, experience and relationships with the customers uh, would really position me well to be able to to get out and, and, and solve that problem and, and create something, which is Brian. And you are incredibly energetic and enthusiastic. Were you always that way in government or did you decide you needed to leave government to find that energy? While I was in government, I was able to study and do quite a few things. I still had the energy in, in government, but it, it, it was great coming back to Macquarie Bank, I think. Cam, what got you into the industry and what motivated you to start the business? Look, I've got a slightly different background. So I started life as an engineer, uh, making batteries in a factory not far from here at Rosebury. So we had uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of years doing that and uh, it was very interesting. Then, then moved on, sort of a change of career to a company at Lakemba called Grey Isle Tim. So it was sort of a bunch of sort of commercial auctioneers. And so I did that and then um, got the internet bug. So the late 90s, the internet was starting to get bigger and I said, it seems crazy, but in 2000, in May 2000, we launched Grey's Online. So we were sort of like the 15th online auction business to start in Australia and had the likes of sort of Amazon and eBay and sold and stuff. And so sort of rode that, I suppose, that growth and it was a fantastic time and built that business to being one of Australia's largest e-commerce businesses. And so in 2015, I'd sort of taken that and I'd been running it for, for that period and was looking for a new opportunity. 
And so I did have a passion for small business. That's what we'd been doing and had a passion for the internet and a passion for looking after customers and particularly small businesses, but also knew the benefit of finance. And so when uh, I took Grays to become Grays Online, we did a management buyout and things sort of go in full circle because to be able to do that, we needed funding. And so I did a management buyout with an unsecured business loan from the bank. And so when I sort of looked at a new career, I knew it was important to uh, to assist small businesses and uh, and also benefit from my knowledge of using the internet. So started the business in Australia called OnDeck, which provides unsecured loans to small businesses. And that's now been going for five years. And so what were some of the main business considerations in that startup phase in the last five years for you? Look, there's a, a lot to think through. One of the big ones was for us was to sort of think, how do you actually present the product? And so all of the small business lenders were either saying it was sort of cents on dollar or APR or simple interest rates. And so they're all correct, but it was very difficult for the customer to understand. And it, it reminded me very much of sort of what happens in e-commerce, sort of how do you present the product? Do you include the freight? Do you not include the freight, the discount? How does it all work? And so one of the first things we did is work with all the industry players to develop a standard way to present our product and actually worked really closely with Afia to develop what's called the smart box. So literally in every contract a small business customer gets, they can see what the price is and compare it amongst all the different funders. So a really big step forward. And I think it was helpful for us, but also the credibility of our industry. So I think two of the uh, least sexy words in the dictionary are financial and literacy. So when you put those two words together, financial literacy, a lot of people tune out. But do you think that's what you've been doing with your business, along with providing products to SMEs, is really helping them um, build their financial capability? I think so. I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm not a literary person, of being an engineer, uh, but I just try to make things really simple. And so I think sort of, you know, to help small businesses, you know, I've been a small business, I love small business. It's simple. It's about projects. It's about cost. It's about return on investment. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, major financiers present will be just too complicated to do. You know, it's like these, these business cases that you need sort of 20 pages to develop for the bank or, you know, all the different information you need. It's just too much for a small business. You know, they need to, decisions quickly. They need to be able to get a return quickly. And so that's what that gap we're trying to fill. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more that's going to happen in the next few months in terms of our economic recovery and really needing to help SMEs through that. Uh, Catherine, so main business considerations for you. I mean, you love your job. It comes out of your, like all of your pores. So, you know, energy again, you, you saw an energy market, um, but it's not just about energy products, is it, your business? No. Specifically when we st- when I started, the relationships that I had with about 350 solar installers around the country and hearing their problem that, that, that they faced at their point of sale, they needed access to a finance product. I also knew that their point of sale uh, when they sell solar was largely the same as the point of sale for vendors that sell home improvement products, be it kitchens, bathrooms, flooring. And so the problem that I could solve for solar installers could also um, that solution could be shared by home improvement vendors. So it's it's more than energy. It's about sustainable and comfortable homes that we're accelerating the uptake of and, and Bright can be used to support vendors in both of those situations. So picking up on that theme that financial services isn't just about products, I mean, the industry is heavily regulated, community expectations are high, the Royal Commission's put a further spotlight on the industry. Are these the sorts of things you need to think about when you're starting up your business, that it's not just the legal environment, but it's the full operating and reputational environment as well? Well, interestingly, when I started Bright, 
the biggest risk that I saw that we faced was reputational risk. And that was something that um, I was aware of from day one. And it was when I started building the business, it was what I thought we needed to manage as our biggest risk. And I say that because at the point of sale, Bright isn't physically there. So we accredit vendors and, and we train those vendors and those vendors have access to our, our tech platform. And so customers are able to apply for Bright credit at, at that point of sale. But we aren't physically there so we can't see what's being said. Uh, we can't see what the vendors are saying about their own product. And so I felt that that was a huge reputational risk for Bright, how, how we were being represented and, and, and what the customer was buying and were they going to deliver the utility from that product. So interesting, the first C role that I hired um, was my chief risk officer. So she had senior roles at, at regulators in Australia and overseas. And for me, single person starting the business, you know, from scratch, I knew what my strengths were and I knew what the business risks were and I knew that I needed to hire where I didn't have those strengths I needed to hire those people and so straight away it was this it was this this role that I needed to um to cover the gap so you just picking on the theme of thinking about distribution channel um, and then your internal competencies what were some of the other challenges you faced when you were establishing the brand of bright establishing the brand well initially to be honest I never spent time on brand. I never had anyone in marketing for three years. Wow. Um, so we only had one person in marketing, one and a half people in marketing a year and a half ago. So we only, I only hired my chief marketing officer last year and started building out that function within the business. So it was sales focused and, and that was my background sales as well. So I had a head of sales and I had a BDM team. And what we did was we focused on our customers and hearing what their problems were. And then we focused on creating product that really solved for those problems. So it was really, you know, hearing customer, developing product, creating functionality and feature enhancement that address those products. And so that's how we've gotten to, you know, where we are largely today. You know, it's 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 probably a bit different to how others were. And and, and why we did that is at that point of sale, um, the vendors, are, you know, we had a national approach from day one and a lot of those vendors were paper-based. So to be able to get in and understand their ways of work and how we could sell, um, we really had to be on the on the ground up before we could start to really scale that. Yeah. And, and Cam, what was your experience with establishing brand? I'd probably say that's probably my forte uh, is actually trying to build a brand. Uh, I probably needed to complement with other areas. So uh, whereas Kath's sort of very strong in the finance area, probably my first recruit, well, it was first recruit was CFO, closely followed by people, <laughs> which might be uh, interesting when you're building it, when you're building a business, it's very important to have sort of that, uh, that covered that culture. But in terms of building the brand, I mean, it was probably twofold is that firstly, we had to be where the customers were. And so uh, it was important for us to build a broker network because we knew that sort of 50% of people get a mortgage through a broker. So roughly, you know, it's, it's going to be a similar sort of percentage with uh, with small business loans. But also, you know, the people who are buying directly through your internet site, you've got to have a great interface there. And as well as we get a partner or an investor in our business, MYB, so one of the largest sort of accounting software businesses in Australia. So we developed a business called MYB Loans. So we're... we're are where small businesses are, where they're interacting, whether they're getting loans or whether they're using their accounting software. The other thing we did is it sort of, you know, we did do branding. Um, so we used, we used radio, we used TV, we used direct mail. We tried to build a brand out there because that's where the value is in the business. People come back. And, uh, and we did do something unique is that every week I set aside half a day to go and visit customers. And it was very, very insightful. 
some of the things you'd get is, is you'd pick out what our average customers were, what, what was the thing that was driving them, how they found the experience, was it easy to understand the contract? And so that was important to us as well as I also took out staff. I took out all our different people and sort of said, this is what a customer looks like, this is how they feel. And it was interesting, our marketing when we launched was completely off. Our presentation would be sort of young people, sort of mid-20s, white teeth, beautiful baristas. Our customers don't look like that. They're in Western Sydney, their average age is 48, and there's a predominance of men. And our marketing is very much delivered towards that. And look, the demographic splits across all the different areas, but we really wanted to have that action feel and feel of actually what our customers look like. So I think that sort of added a lot to our business in terms of sort of understanding the customers, understanding how they felt about the product and enables us to sort of drive forward from there. So I'm picking up on a few themes from the both of you here, which is really knowing your leadership strengths and gaps, knowing your target customers and knowing your desired culture. And I think between the three of those, you've really been able to take a startup into the next stage. So picking up on that, Cam, how do you really embed a long-term strategy and take a business from that initial phase into the next phase? It's a really interesting one because that initial phase is super important because it's all about learning. And so when you're about to launch, you don't you don't understand what the average loan size is going to be. You don't know what, what term people want, how many loans they're going to take. And so there's so many variables there that you sort of, you've got to learn over a period of time. How much does it cost you to get a customer? And so we had the metrics coming out of the US, but we then had to extrapolate that here. And it even comes down to the credit model. Is it what's propensity for an Australian to pay you back? And we very helpfully found out that Australians pay back a lot more than they do in the US. There's a, and they're much more conservative too. They, they self-regulate to credit much differently than the US who take generally as much as they can get. So we had a lot of learning. And then what we're able to do then is to sort of pull that together and sort of say, okay, what do we learn from that? What are the key drivers for our business moving forward to build a sustainable, profitable business? And so we now have sort of longer term plans with those sort of KPIs embedded in there. So, Catherine, as the business matures, just sort of building on what Cam's been saying, how do you foster a culture of innovation and how do you keep the team motivated? How do you stay competitive, particularly in, you know, tough economic times like what we're dealing with now? There's always so much to do. So there's always so much to do. There are always um, so many challenges that we face and also um, goals that we set ourselves as a team. And I think, you know, we've got it right as far as setting the culture within the organisation, we're a really high-performing team and we hire people who are quite competitive. And so I think that combination of having having the right culture, fostering that culture, giving people responsibility and then having really ambitious goals and then saying to people, okay, here's the culture, you have the freedom. Um, a Macquarie term is freedom within boundaries, which I like to use. So you have the freedom, like go out and do it, go out and do it, go and, you know, go and reach for these targets. And I think that really works within the organisation so it's really important that, you know, we assess, are we putting in place too many meetings? What are we doing as far as creating rules, uh, are things that we're setting up, creating restrictions or limiting people's ability to move fast? So we continually assess, you know, our culture and the way that we operate as a company. And, you know, one of the things that I definitely um, worry about uh, is as you get bigger and you get more devolved, do you put different layers in place that make it harder to be agile and harder to move fast? And because I'm worried about that, it's something we always think about and it's something I always think about so you know when you plan your week when you look at how meetings are operating or if I'm reflecting on how teams are working I always want to make sure that things are set up so we continue to move fast that the success we've had to date 
in in scaling and growing and building that we can continue to do that over time even as you know we get uh, we've 85 people now but even as we become a larger and larger organization yeah and cam is that something you think about as well is is that the challenge of becoming too big being making it more difficult to know what to do and what not to do as a leader yeah, it is hard to, as an entrepreneur often to sit into larger businesses, you know, and say you don't have the agility, you can't do the sort of things and you don't have the sort of, I suppose, discipline around you um, and it's almost too disciplined uh, to, to have that entrepreneurial spirit. I think an example that was interesting was sort of COVID is, is that, you know, we had a lot of issues with it with our customers. Our, our customers were sort of under threat for a period of time and still, you know, a lot of them really struggling. So during that period, we sort of had quite a lot of resources that weren't really that occupied and sort of, you know, highly skilled people, highly motivated people, people that wanted to work really hard, but it wasn't as if we were going to do a massive marketing campaign at the end of March. Mm. We needed to be doing different things. And so we actually used that time. We actually did a lot of brainstorming around what are things, projects we could do that would add value to the business. And so we've got a number of projects that are making us more efficient, but we've also got a great new strategy around a new product to launch. And so all COVID-built type initiatives and it kept everyone really sort of on their toes and kept everyone really really engaged during that period where essentially we could have just sat back and done done not too much because really you couldn't originate a lot during the middle of COVID. The post-COVID environment is going to continue to put pressure on people to understand how to prioritise. So now continuing from that theme of success in times of stress or discomfort, was there a particular project or person that was critical to your success in the early days, Cam? Definitely finance for me. So making sure you've got sort of all of that information at your fingertips. And then I think, you know, secondary or not really secondary equal to that is obviously risk. So during the sort of, during this period, that's been absolutely vital. And so, you know, being a data analytics business, being able to measure that accurately and be able to adapt to certain circumstances or the environment changing has been absolutely critical to us. But, you know, in every startup, your executive team is vital and they become more than an executive team. They become actually friends. Because, you know, sometimes it's pretty easy and you're, you're celebrating. Other times it's really hard and each day could be a real challenge. And so you're spending a lot of time together and you're putting, put into challenging circumstances. So in both sort of startups I've been is you get really, really close to that executive team. But also, I suppose an extension of that is, is that, you know, not every startup person loves being into a scaled up business as well. So the same executive team may be different um, as you're growing a business and that goes from the CEO down to every role. So Catherine, reflecting on where you are now, would you prioritise brand over a sales focus? I did hear Cam and think, oh, well, maybe I should have done it differently. <laughs> for Bright, I'd do it all again exactly how I did it and, and why I think that's true for us. We have two customers. So one is the vendor and, 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 and their salespeople, and then they introduce their customers to us. And, and, and then the homeowners become our customers. And those homeowners have a reusable line of credit that, that they can use again to, to buy with Bright. So our business growth and our revenue generation was contingent on these vendors. And so it was developing the relationships with the vendors, training those vendors. And, and our experience was that we needed those grassroots experiences for, you know, how we could develop a product, create a product. And once we had those experiences, then we could scale them. And, and it's a very direct relationship. So for me, um, now we're focusing on brand and we're focusing on brand. We did our last radio, uh, last month we did our first radio advertising. 
why we're now investing in brand is because we have 60,000 homeowners with a reusable line of credit and they're telling us 75% of them have told us that they want to use Bright again. And so now we're starting to focus on brand and focus on that relationship with that homeowner and, and getting them more aware of who we are and use us again. And then, you know, when they spend, they're coming back over to the vendors and, um, you know, they're asking for Bright to pay with Bright at the point of sale. So I never wanted to um, acquire those homeowners to begin with, I really needed to acquire those points of sale and have them trained and have them prioritizing bright, you know. And, and so for us, um, focusing on sales first was was right and focusing on brand second, I'd, I'd, I'd do this again. I mean, quite frankly, all lenders in Australia have been doing an amazing job supporting their customers by providing repayment relief and reducing repayments. As a specialised lender, I mean, what do you see your role as during the next phase of our recovery? And how do you get SMEs to really start thinking about investing in the future of their business? I mean, we want to be able to see more private spending and businesses are the engine room of our economy. It's interesting. When we, um, so very much like a lot of lenders, when COVID first hit, a lot of our customers went on moratorium and we actually changed our business as well. So we moved a lot of our salespeople into customer service. So we didn't email them. We didn't sort of like send them other correspondence. We actually rang every customer, checked in how they're going and said, do you need a moratorium? And what was crazy is that a month later, 50% of them started making full repayments. And so people knew the benefit of actually paying that debt off if they were able to. And so it might have extended their loan, but it actually, they were very prudent and small businesses in Australia are very smart. They're conservative. And they know their business as well. And so that was great going through COVID. And then our job now is to sort of speak to them when it's appropriate. So a lot of them are sort of resetting their expectations, making sure that their business is now viable again. And then if they do see opportunities, whether it's sort of buying some more inventory, refurbishing their store, we're there with some funding available to help them grow again. And so that's what we see. Our role is to help a lot of these small businesses come back out of this uh, quite difficult situation everyone's been in. And Catherine, similarly for you, I mean, your business deals directly with SMEs and you are, uh, you know, a growing business yourself. So where do you see the opportunities for your business over the next six months? Interestingly, um, at the start of COVID, what we saw was people contacting us. They hadn't lost their job. They didn't have a change in their financial circumstances, but they were worried about what would happen if they did. And so it was that uncertainty and that anxiety that was was really quite dominant in the early days. And so, you know, similar to Cam, what we did, we offered all of those people a 30 days payment holiday. We also stopped, uh, we do have a late payment fee that we charge. So we stopped the late payment fees um, and we said, listen, take the time that you need. Um, we didn't actually call it a hardship arrangement. At this time, we just said, just take a, you know, 30 day payment holiday. And we'll check in with you in a month or, you know, you, you, you give us a call. And what we found is the majority of those customers actually found they're okay. On average, a repayment with Bright um, is quite a small repayment. So fortnightly, it's about an $80, $80 um, payment a fortnight. So compared to other things that they may be repaying, such as a car or a home, you know, it was a really small repayment. And the customers that we lend to um, a very high head, uh, credit score, they're homeowners, and they understand the importance of, you know, keeping their credit standing, you know, strong. So I think, um, you know, they either weren't impacted, they prioritised the repayments. We're in a situation where our late payers um, are actually 
actually lower than they were pre-COVID. So customers, you know, the feedback that we've had is that, you know, they, they haven't been impacted. On the business side, that was interesting though. Um, we did see with the customer uncertainty on the, the homeowner side, there was a period where they were less receptive to buying. So if there was a period of uncertainty, they were less receptive to buying. After that, that was when they started saying, okay, we're going to buy everything online and home improvements and solar started, you know, booming. But for about a month there, there, there was a lot of uncertainty. And it was that month where we actually had to help businesses. So the vendors who are our customers, and a lot of them were doing home-based sales. They'd never done online um, sales. They'd never done phone sales. And so we had a really big task there of helping those small businesses giving them toolkits for, you know, what your obligations are in COVID and how you can speak to customers and how you can transition to an online-based sales environment. And we saw them going through a lot of flux. So they had subcontractors, they had to make redundancies and terminations where they couldn't get JobKeeper. So we actually found there was a lot of support we actually had to provide to the vendors on our platform, as well as to, to the homeowners on the platform. The next six months, as I mentioned, the home improvements ha- has been booming act- actually once everyone got the confidence. So, you know, we see sales, sales picking up definitely pre-COVID levels, uh, you know, with home improvements and, and solar. People, when they pay with Bright and they buy solar, they save on average $100 a month, you know, in a reduction in their energy bills. And so, you know, it, it continues to be a really big focus for people to, you know, focus on your, your household cost of living, like do what you can do to be able to have control over your finances. And so solar continues to be a big, a big focus area. So it's just, you know, it's just helping those vendors ad- adapt to a new way of selling which we're continuing to do and just helping existing customers, you know, know that there's a way to use Bright again to continue to access a more affordable, comfortable, sustainable home. So what advice would you give to an entrepreneur or business leader attempting to get into the industry, particularly financial services, because it is such a tough environment? Yeah, I, I mean, I've had people come to me from time to time asking for advice. I think you either need to have deep experience. It doesn't have to be in finance, but it has to be in understanding complex businesses, you know, how to grow businesses, build businesses, and, you know, how to identify distribution channels and all the, you know, the key components of what, what your business needs to be successful. So if you've had that experience, it's great. And I had that. But if, if you don't have it, you need to be able to understand how to put it together and then how you can either buy that or how you can entice those people to come on, you know, into the business. And so I would say that, you know, depending on which camp you fall in, you know, whether you have the experience, well, then I think it's about confidence and it's about, you know, backing yourself, taking the risk. And before you take the risk, making sure that the problem you're solving is big enough, you know, that it's big enough for you to be able to kind of sacrifice everything and throw it in and, you know, give it a shot. And then if you don't kind of have that experience, but you know the problem's real and it's genuine and, you know, you can pull it all together, well, you know, still take the risk think about how you're going to build that company, that culture early on um, and how you're going to get that skill set in to to help you scale and grow and navigate areas that that you don't understand technically. I think you're right. What I've seen as corporate cultures have emerged is you need to be a specialist, but you also need to be a generalist. And I think as the world becomes increasingly more complex, and certainly with COVID, what we've seen is is that, you know, people are becoming more and more overwhelmed with uncertainty, but actually what we're being asked to do is be really resilient and face into that and have clear ideas how to how to come out of it. Cam, what do you think? You know, what would you what's your advice to give to an entrepreneur thinking of getting into the fintech sector? Look, I think it's the same with every sector. You've got to look at the incumbents and what they're good at. And I think the unique thing about financial sector is how dominant the banks are in Australia, which is sort of different to sort of where it is globally. And 
the big four, they're not the big four because they're not good at things. They're very good at a lot of things. And so you've got to sort of pick where your niche is going to be. And is there a big enough opportunity in that particular niche? So when you're sort of talking about us is there's 2.2 million small businesses in Australia. Now, we're not going to be able to service all of them. The banks are really good at servicing their top end, the, the larger, the more prime small businesses. But the little guys, they're not well serviced in our view. And so it takes too long for them to get funding, and a lot of the time they can't get funding. And if they do, they've got to put their personal house on the line as security. And so we saw that as the opportunity, and there is a lot of those sort of small businesses there that really the banks aren't focusing on. So I suppose that's the way that sort of we look at it, and I think that a sort of entrepreneur should look at how how the financial service industry split. The, the banks are very good at a number of things, but not everything. And, and there's a lot of things that they're not good at. They actually don't want to be that good at it. They're just not that focused on it because you can't do everything. So to me is get your niche. What are you going to be famous for? When someone sort of, you know, calls out your brand, what's the first thing they're going to think of? Um, and I think that's pretty crucial in any business. Well, that's a very nice segue into my last question for you guys <laughs> is, is what are you going to be remembered for? So Cam, what do you think Catherine's greatest achievement has been so far in her career? Well, this morning I've heard a lot, but I think she, I think she's done a, f- a fantastic job moving from the government, from Macquarie Bank, and then actually never led people to actually running a really crazy successful firm. So I think she's done really well there. And for people that don't know, she's also a very successful mum and looks after her husband, Peter, very well as well. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, Catherine, what do you think Cam's greatest achievement so far has been? I think Cam may have stolen some of my points where I was sequencing. <laughs> you think his greatest achievement is looking at your notes? <laughs> So I, you know, I think we heard him early on talk about, you know, how he started off as an engineer and then, you know, really impressive how he launched one of Australia's largest e-commerce systems, uh, businesses. So um, that's, that's huge. Was that in 2000? 2000. 2000 yeah. you started. So that's huge, you know, and so it's 20, 20 years ago today. So I think that was amazing. He could have stopped there. And just shone, you know, in that light, and then he didn't. He went and started another business that was a little bit different to what what he did with with Grays Online, you know. And it's Australia's one of Australia's fastest growing businesses in 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 small business lending. So I just think how he has, you know, moved and continued to to reinvent, and um, you know, had had great success at every time he's done that. I think that's very impressive. Thanks, Kath. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks both of you for your time today. Uh, Look, I think it's a combination of skill, enthusiasm and personality that your winning formulas are both. So well done to the both of you and I look forward to seeing what the next part of your careers bring. Thanks, Di. Thanks, Di. The future of finance is here. That much we know. Be sure to tune into our next episode where we continue the conversation on creating change in the finance industry with the people that are making change happen. Let us know what you think. Leave a review or rating and tell us if there is someone you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like covered that you think will shape the future of our industry. I'm Mel Carpenter, Executive Director, Member Services, and I'm thrilled to have you joining this series with us. If you like what you've heard, head to afia.asn.au to find out more or subscribe via your favourite podcast app.